You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. So if you got a Bible, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're just joining us, uh, we're just working through uh, this precious gift that God has given us in this book of Ecclesiastes and working through it this summer. And so we're at the end of chapter 5. And so if you're able, I encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. So starting in verse 10 and reading down to verse 20. So the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the, one who cons- the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There's a sickening tragedy that I've seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner's by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked. As he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the win? What is more, He eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Here's what I've seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because this is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth He's also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider his days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, we do, once again, uh, as we often do, give thanks for your sustaining grace and power to get us through another week. We give thanks that we can gather together and sing and hear from you, Lord. So God, as we um, unpack this text this morning, may you open up our hearts, um, calm our defensiveness, and help us to receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So yeah, what a great passage of Scripture to come back on after being off for a few weeks. So I get to come back and talk about money. Amen. So I'm sure based on that response, you're excited also, right? It's like, <laughs> yep, I feel the same way. So it's interesting and uh, it like, hey, I didn't choose the text. We're just working through Ecclesiastes. This is where we are. Um, I find it interesting that if you grew up in church, um, 
you know that there's a lot of ink. There's a lot of words about money within the Bible, specifically in the book of Proverbs. So we're not surprised that we see it here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as maybe you've heard before, I mean, this is one of the, the most important things or not the most, the thing that Jesus talked about most is your money, your stuff, your wealth, mammon, as some translations uh, have that. And so sometimes you wonder like, why in the world is there so much ink about money and there's not much ink about parenting? Like, you know, it's like, I just like to have a little bit more, right? Amen. Find a Tell the guys, hey, can you just write just something, just a little more? I need some help, right? I mean, think about marriage. There's not a whole lot about marriage either. There's like a couple passages. That's, that's about it. It's like, I, I don't know. Something on communication might help me a little bit, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's so little. And I could give you a ton more examples of the little ink that we find areas of going like, oh, I'd like to have a little bit more of that. But it's interesting that you don't find that the case with money and our stuff. I think there's several reasons why. I think one of them is, is that money is a source of stress, frustration, causes a ton of anxiety. I mean, anybody felt that this week? You can raise your hand. You won't get called out or anything, right? I have. I mean, it's just a constant anxiety that all of us experience. I think money also is something that we deal with on an everyday basis, like we like there's not a day that goes by that you don't deal with. I know we don't deal with cash that much anymore and blah, blah, blah. There's all kinds of theories. Oh my gosh, cash, let's like move on. We're not talking about that. But we do, that was supposed to be a joke. All right. We do deal with money on a consistent basis, whether it's through a card or an app, or there's some kind of exchange that goes on on a daily basis. Like you just, you don't spend a day without dealing with it. And then another reason I think too is that it is the one tangible way that we can really gauge our own spiritual growth and maturity. Trust is abstract, isn't it? So we can, we can quote that verse that we quoted at the very beginning of our service, you know, no one lacks anything good. Those who trust in the Lord, they lack nothing good. I mean, we can quote that verse. We can put in our journal, we can stitch it in a pillow, we can put it on a coffee mug. But man, like the actual living that out, like where, where do you really see that? How do you really know that you trust that truth? No one lacks anything good of those who trust in the Lord. Where do you really see that and know whether you do really believe and live that? I would say... How do you spend your money? What do you find easy to spend your money on? When someone asks you to give, what's your natural response? When I talk about giving every single week that we gather, what goes on inside of you? It's... It's one of the tangible means by which, which we can kind of gauge whether we really trust God. We can say it, but do we really believe it? So I'm thankful, you know, maybe it doesn't feel like that. I'm thankful that as we work through books of the Bible, there's always some time when we have to talk about money because it usually shows up somewhere. And so I'm thankful it is here in Ecclesiastes. And this is where I think he's trying to, um, to move us in these 10 verses here. I think he's trying to, to 
in, invite us and encourage us to ponder and, and ask a better question. I think the question that um, we get bombarded with in our culture and our society is, how can I have more? How can I increase what I already have? How can I get more? That's the question that we're consistently taught. You're being taught within our culture. You're being shaped and formed to view and value money in a certain way. And the, and the question, whether you realize it or not, that's always being pushed on you is, how can I have more? There's no advertisement that's coming out going, be content, <laughs> right? Like our economy would crash, right? I mean, like the whole point of marketing is to show you you're not content and, and try to prove to you that you need whatever it is that they have. And so whether you realize it or not, and whether you even realize that this is the question you're asking, I would put before you, it's at play in you. You're asking the question, how can I have more? How can I get more? How, how can I increase what I sort of already have? It's, it's at play in you, whether you realize it or not, because it's the message that is being bombarded to you all the time. It's teaching you and shaping you how not to be content, right? And so I, I think the preacher here in Ecclesiastes wants us to ponder and, and ask a better question. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I have to wait till the end, all right? Keep you here for a few minutes, right? But what he does in, um, like he normally does is, the writer here, in a candid way, he makes some observations about money, about wealth, about our stuff. And uh, these are observations, like I've said before, you know, as we've kind of worked this book, he's not some kind of old guy that's ranting and, you know, just mad about the world, blah, blah, blah. No, this is a guy who pursued after these things to see what they can, he can get from them. Like, what, what gain do I get? So this, this is a guy that's coming once again that, that has some credibility here. And he has some observations that I just want to point out real quick. He's got like three that I think he lays out here in these verses, uh, verses 10 through 17 specifically. Um, and here's the first one. Uh, he's, he's given us a, a, a candid observation that money is cruel. Or another way of even saying it, that money sort of is an oppressor. Well, where do you see that? What do you mean by that, Lyle? Well, in verse 10, we see that money creates a craving that it never satisfies. That's pretty frustrating. You just see what he said there. Verse 10, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. Money makes all these promises, but it never fulfills in these promises. And that promises is contentment, satisfaction, I'm going to get to a place where I'm going to finally be settled. And it's a lie. It creates a craving that it never satisfies. The lie that the writer here, the preacher, is rejecting is the one that we all have a tendency to believe. And that is this. The more that I get, the less I will want. That's the lie we believe. That's the lie I believe. That the more I get, the less I'll want. And in fact, it, the opposite happens. The more I get, the more I want. Because money is cruel. It's an oppressor. It, it creates a craving that never satisfied. Secondly, it creates moochers, right? Anybody, you know what a moocher is, right? 
Maybe you're one of them. Verse 11 says this, when, when good things increase, guess what happens? The ones who consume them multiply, right? What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? As our goods increase, it just complicates everything because not only does it change you, it also changes everyone around you. You get any kind of wealth possibly through an investment or through an inheritance or whatever. It's interesting how many people begin to make phone calls to you and text you, hey, you remember me, hey, Buddy, a long time ago, I just had a conversation with a guy several years ago who um, sold his company and overnight gained a large sum of money. And it's interesting how many people gave him a call, sent him a text. Hey, just want to catch up with you if you get a chance. And it's interesting. All the moochers come out, right? It just creates more problems, more money. That comes directly out of the Bible, right? Proverbs 14 uh, 20 says this, the poor, is, the poor are shunned even by their neighbors. But guess what? The rich have what? A lot of friends. So money's cruel. It creates a craving that won't ever satisfy. It's a way of getting all kinds of moochers, right? Another thing we see there in the cruelty of money is there in verse 12. Uh, it creates a difficulty to sleep or causes unrest. I mean, look what he says here. In verse 12, the sleep of a worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich prohibits him no sleep. So you got so much, you're always worrying about it. What's going to happen? What you're going to do with it? Or another way of thinking about abundance is the idea of indigestion. Overindulgence is also what the Preacher's kind of getting at with that word abundance because wherever there's affluence, there's usually overindulgence. One commentator talks about it like this. It's not the reason why this, this person is not able to sleep is not because of exhaustion or worry per se, but also his money because he is, has a full stomach. He is, he's overeaten because there's affluence. There's a way for him to overindulge. He goes on and says this, and I quote, we offer an unconscious comment on it, talking about us, right, by our modern exercise machines and health clubs. For it is the one of our human absurdities to pour out money and effort just to undo the damage of money and ease. Money's cruel. Money is cruel. Creates a craving, never just never satisfies, right? All kinds of moochers come out. <laughs> and has a way of keeping us from sleeping and having real rest. Second observation that he makes about money, this candid observation here, is that money's a thief. It actually steals stuff from you. It doesn't give much. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list that he gives to us here, but there's a couple I'll highlight. It steals your joy. Look what he says here in verse 13. There's a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun, wealth kept by his owner to his own harm. That this, this owner here of wealth is so wrapped up in, in how money brings about security and certainty for the future that he's, 
even unable to enjoy what money can do for him. <laughs> that he's hoarding it so much to his own harm. It steals his own joy. He goes on in verse 14 where he says the wealth is lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. So, you know, he's storing up this wealth in order to offer an inheritance to his kids. And there's just a, a bad business deal. He wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even like a, this, this risky thing. No, it's just a, a business deal that went bad that just happened, right? It wasn't like he was just frivolous with his money and woke up overnight being poor, basically. And as a way of like robbing the joy of being able to give your children something, right? Money's a thief. Not only does it rob you and steal your joy, it also steals your life. I think that's what he's getting after when he talks about it in verse 17, when he says, what is more he, talking about this wealthy owner in the verses previous to this, he eats in darkness all of his days. What he's talking about there, what does he mean he's eating in darkness all of his days? It doesn't mean he can't pay his light bill. Eating in that time was a social event. It just means he's absolutely alone. If you make money your aim, you will sacrifice. And you will sacrifice relationships. All of us in this room can probably think of somebody that that was their aim. And they find themselves eating all by themselves in this nice, beautiful home. He goes on. Not only does he eat in darkness all his day, he eats with much frustration, sickness, and anger. The, the piling up or the you know, kind of piling up of emotions here is just to basically communicate a wasted Life, a life that no one would want, nor would they want their life to end like this. Derek Kidner, again, commenting about this verse, says this, and I quote, For the love of money grows by what it feeds on, but it may show itself more subtly in a general discontent, a longing not necessarily for more money, but for inward fulfillment. If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness that it leaves. Man who is created with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. So not only is money cruel, sort of an oppressor here, it's also a thief. It, it steals joy. It steals your life. Jesus said it like this in one sentence, Luke 12, verse 15, when he said this, and he told them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because why? One's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And then lastly here, the last observation that he makes about money is there in verse 15 where he just says money doesn't carry over. It's kind of nice to have vacation days that carry over. It's kind of nice to have personal days that carry over. It's kind of nice to have sick days that carry over. It's really good. That's wonderful to work for a company like that. But look, money does not carry over. <laughs> Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again naked. As he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. A little group participation here. Every single one of us, take your hands and just open them up like this and look at them. Look at them. 
And what's in your hands? Say it out loud. This is not a trick question. And this is not the Jesus answer, right? Jesus is not in your hands, right? What's in your hands, right? What is it? Nothing. You came like this into the world and you will leave like this. And all of us agree and say, yes, that is true, right? Does our life show that? To spend our life chasing after wealth, or maybe you would say, I don't chase after wealth, I don't chase after money. Maybe there's a chasing after what you think wealth and money will give you. It's like spending an entire day building a beautiful sandcastle on the beach. But the difference is this, is that you know eventually the tide's going to come in sometime that day and destroy that sandcastle. But it's interesting. (laughs) We forget that about money, don't we? Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6 to his young protege, Timothy. But godliness with contentment is what? Say it out loud. Great gain. Like, do you believe that? Godliness with contentment, not just gain, great gain. Why? Why, Paul? Why do you say that? Well, guess what? When he's writing Timothy's letter, I guarantee you, he's got Ecclesiastes chapter 5 in mind. Why? Look what he says in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish, harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many Greece. Look, guys, I, I think sometimes what we can have a tendency to do with a passage like this, and the devil would love for you to do that this morning, is we would say, I don't love money. I don't have a problem with money. I'm not pursuing after money. I don't love it. I'm not, it's not the center of my life. And I just want to, I just want to say, like, look, can we just drop our defenses down and recognize that the culture of which we live in, which is a, a very affluent culture. Whether, whether you are on the poverty line or you're middle class or upper class, like you are surrounded with wealth. And I'm here to tell you, like it is at play in you, this pursuit of it. It is at play in your life. And so for us to look at what Paul's trying to say here, as well as what the preacher's saying, and go, I don't have a problem with money. You're fooling yourself. All of us do. All of us do. And so we need, my desire for my own life and your life is like we talk about often here, is like we have an open posture toward God, toward Jesus and his word. That's what faith is. An open posture to what Jesus and what his word has to say here. And his word is telling us something about money. And so let us, let us not do this. Oh, that darn preacher always talking about money. Blah, 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 blah. Shut the stink up, all right? That's what some of you say. I mean, I'm, I'm not joking with you. I hear people tell me, Lyle, you do not talk enough about money. We need to talk about it more. And then I got other people telling me, Lyle, you talk way too much about money. 
you need to stop talking about money. And I just want to say, well, guess what? Half of you are kind of happy today and half of you are ticked off at me. Amen? But all I'm just trying to say, like, why can't we just, by the Spirit of God and the grace of God, approach the very words of God through faith, having this open posture toward Jesus and his word. He's not out to get you. He's not out to kill your joy. So yeah, I mean, money's cruel. It's a thief. It steals. I mean, maybe that's not the best way to say it. money can't carry over, but, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Like, you come in this world like this, and you're going to leave like that. So then what do we do with it? Like, what's, what's the better question, Lyle? I'm saying, like, like then what's the framework? What's how, how, what am I supposed to say? If this is what money is, then... Now deal with it all the time. What am I supposed to do with it? Well, look what he says here in verse 18. It's interesting, man. It's almost like he had like this sudden insight of this epiphany. And it's like, you feel the shift. And I try to bring the shift out when I read the text there earlier. But look what he says here starting in verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good. It, it is appropriate, appropriate, or another way of even saying that, it, it's fitting, it's right to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life, God has given him because that is his reward. Verse 19, furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy of his heart. So here's the invitation that kind of sum up what I think is going on in those two verses here. A, a better question for us is, is not to say, how can I get more or how can I increase what, a, what I already know? No, a better question is, how can I enjoy what I already have? I think that's what he's getting after here. Eat, drink, experience good and all that has been given to you by God. So instead of asking, how can I get more? Reflect, ponder, think about the question of how can I enjoy what I currently have? Not what you want to have. Not what you wish you can have. Not what you're hoping that this new job or whatever it is is going to get you to have later on. No, what you have right now, how can you enjoy it? Or Paul, what did he say? What, what's the word that Paul used? This is not true question. It's right there in the passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. What's the word? Contentment. Godliness with, with what? Say it out loud. Contentment is what? Great gain. So the, so the invitation that the preacher has given to us, he's not trying to make you feel bad if you're wealthy because wealth in and of itself is not sinful. It's, it's not. It's, it's crazy. There's nowhere in the Bible. He's not trying to make you feel bad if you spend your money. It's not at all. He's trying to help you view your money in a way that's going to give you life. And what's going to give you life is to learn how to have contentment with what you have. Can we just stop for a few minutes and recognize that the message that our culture is giving us about how we're to use our money is leaving us miserable and stressed out and anxious? We just stop and go, all right, maybe this is not the best way to use my money. Maybe you would love to have steak every single night for, for dinner, but all your budget can afford is pork chops. Pork chops are a gift from God, amen? They came from the same animal that gave us bacon, and we love bacon, amen? <laughs> Wrap that pork chop in some bacon. 
Some of you may want to go to Jeff Ruby's every date night and get you something really nice. Well, you're a bunch of, can only afford Outback, right? That's a gift from God. Enjoy Outback. It's not a bad steak. It's actually pretty decent. I know I'm being really silly. But here's what I would say and encourage you to think about. Think about how much of our own frustration, lack of even joy in our life is because it's, it's sort of driven by this inability to enjoy what we have. You ever thought that maybe one of the greatest mercies that God has toward you is limiting your own income? That this is the income that God has given you. How can you enjoy what you have? So instead of asking, how can I increase? The invitation I feel like that the preacher has given to us is how can I enjoy what I currently have? A few years ago, we went to um, St. Augustine, Florida for um, vacation to visit some good friends who were part of our church several years ago. And this is where, when our, our kids were a little younger, than I, maybe our oldest was 13, 14. Um, and then it kind of spreads down from there. And have you ever been to St. Augustine? Anybody been there? It's a beautiful place, man. A lot of history. And so just to kind of give you a picture of what kind of the downtown area is, it's kind of similar like, a, like a, um, you know, I don't know why I'm going blank. Gatlinburg went blank on what, what it is. Not, not exactly like that, but you can like, picture shops and kind of knickknack stuff that you can walk in and look at stuff. And so there was a, a magic store. And one of the stores there, and so um, and the dude was doing magic, so our family goes in there, and our boys are in there with him, and he, I mean, he's doing some really cool stuff. I mean, really, this is really pretty entertaining. So he's doing whatever magic trick is, and gets done with it, and then after he gets done with it, then he shows them how he's doing the trick. And that's like next level fascinating, because they're going, now you can do this, right? Let me show you how I'm doing that, and he kind of uncovers what he does. And then my boys are going, that's awesome. That's great. And then you know what, guys? You can do the same thing because all you got to do is pay $19.99 and you can take this trick home. When you got four kids, it's not like, well, those are going to buy one and you guys all share it, right? Maybe you're a better parent than me. That just doesn't work in my home. And I knew we were toast. It's like, this was, why did I come in here? It's like, this is the dumbest thing, but they got me. They, they convinced my kids that they had to have this. And sure enough, we walked out of there spending about $100. So, Dad, it's vacation. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know where those stupid things are to this day. I mean... They probably played with them maybe four times. I don't know. But sometimes I do. I feel like our, our culture, 
the world we live in. It's kind of like that magic shop, isn't it? It's just constantly convincing us that we've got to have this. And looking at everything that God has given to us and not being content. There's a better way. There's a better way. And I realize also, too, that whenever I speak about money and stuff like this, you, you always got, like, so many spectrums, right? And so some of you are on kind of the spectrum of where you're just naturally very frugal, right? Your temperamental wiring is saving, never spending. Like, you just you don't buy anything for yourself, and, you know, which is, which is great. And probably you're hearing this sermon going, amen, amen. Everybody needs to be more simple and simplicity. We're all for that, and... The problem with that sometimes is you, you kind of mix your spirituality in that and you kind of make yourself feel a little prideful because you don't need stuff, you don't buy anything for yourself. And, and that, that's, that's a little dangerous, right? So sometimes a message about money for those that are kind of more frugal, like you need to spend every once in a while. You do. I went golfing with my brother last, uh, last week and he has a tendency to kind of land in this little area here a little bit, and I love him to death. And we were uh, playing golf, and he had these golf shoes for 20 years. He bought them at Kmart. You guys remember Kmart? <laughs> McGregor was the brand back then, right? We're on the ninth hole. Those things have turned into flip-flops. <laughs> on his, I'm, I'm not joking. On his right foot, the sole was completely coming off. He's like scooting around, you know? <laughs> That's why I said, Brian, man, you got to go in the pro shop and buy you some new shoes. Like, you can't, you can't do this, right? So he goes in there. He's in there for like five minutes, comes back out, holding his soul. And we went golfing with my wife's dad. His name's Bob. Do you think Bob has any duct tape? <laughs> I'm like, you moron. You can't. Nobody has duct tape, number one, in their golf bag. Like, there's no one has that. You just don't. Even Bob carries the weirdest stuff. I don't think he has duct tape. And you can't duct tape your shoes. Like, go spend a hundred. It's a hundred dollars, Brian. I know it's a lot of money, but if you have these shoes for 20 years, it's five dollars a year. Go back to the stupid pro shop and buy you some golf shoes, man. Let's go, right? It's like sometimes for those that are in that temperamental wire, like you do, there's nothing wrong with spending money. There's nothing wrong with eating a good meal. For some of you, you need to do it guilt-free. You need to kind of come over here a little bit. Enjoy. That's the message part of what Ecclesiastes taught. I know it's a sort of a depressing book, but it's interesting how often joy comes in Ecclesiastes. Enjoy the gift that God has given you. And there's others of us in here that just spend. Oh, my gosh. And you need to kind of move a little over here. And you need to feel the pain sometimes of giving and sacrificing and saying no, and being content with what you have. So I'll end with this. Um, so how, like, what does that look like? How does, what does it look like for me to really kind of enjoy what I currently have? What, 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 what's some tangible things there? And I, this is not a long list. I'll give you three really quick. I think it first starts here. And, and I know we say this every week, um, but like, like, this is where it begins. You must be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
Contentment is a gift. The goal isn't for you to go home and watch the Netflix thing, minimalism, and say, I'm going to do that. That's not the goal. At the end of the day, the goal is not to be minimalistic toward all your stuff and have one pair of clothes and live in a 200-square-foot home and look how awesome. No, No, the goal is for you to be a human being who's in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, because that's how you're created to live. And the goal is for your heart and your desires to line up with what God's heart is and God's desires are because therein is where life is found. And so the only way that happens, guys, is when you begin a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and the spirit of God comes and transforms your heart and you get a brand new heart with new wants and new desires. And and, and this is also training too. It isn't like, you know, I wake up the next day and everything's awesome. No, you've got this new heart and new desires and there's a continual walking and growing in Christ-likeness and being in relationship with him. Yeah, there's a starting point, but then there's also this continual process of being in relationship with him because no one, including me, ever arrives at a place where they go, I got money figured out. Just check that. No one. We're always needing to be reminded of how to think and frame our minds when it comes to money. Always. Why? Because we're getting bombarded by another message that says, you don't have enough. So I need to daily sit down with my father through Jesus Christ and open up his word and my life and pray. And that includes also what I do with my stuff. See, God, help me. Help me. That's first place. Second, how do I enjoy what I have? Do everything you possibly can to live under your means. I'll say that again. Do everything, absolutely everything possible to live under your means. If you don't have a budget, build a budget. If you don't know how to build a budget, fill out a connect card, put your name, your phone number. I need help. We will give you help and get you help. We've got a ton of people here that know how to do that. It's not me. I'm not good at it. I got a budget, but man, it's, it's, it's not great, right? I'm like, but we got other people in this room that can sit down with you and help you build a budget. Listen, guys, the reason why I harp on this is because it will take your stress level and bring it down, and it will give you margin in your life to do the third thing that I think is really important in order for you to learn how to enjoy what you have, and that is to be generous, to give. So in relationship with Christ, live under your means, give. Give. The framework we talk about around here often is this. Give, save, and live. It's the very opposite in our culture, right? Our culture says live, save some, and if you got anything left over, give. That's the definition of misery. That's the definition of how to be stressful and anxious about your stuff. That's the definition of how, how not to be content with your money. Well, spend all you got, save a little bit, and then give a little bit if you have anything left over. But if you want to enjoy what you have, then the first thing, and maybe this is legalistic, I don't really give a rip if it is or not, but the first thing you do is give. Before you pay one bill, before you pay one bill, write 
If you do checks, I don't, I do checks. I know that's like 1990s called and they want their checks back a while, but I do checks, whatever it is that you set up, maybe it's automatic withdrawal. I'm just, I'm just pleading with you to give. Not because of this church or because it needs it or whatever. I'm pleading with you because I want you to be obedient to God and I want your joy to increase and I want you to have contentment. So give. I think if you're looking for a number, then I would start at 10%. Why do you think 10%? Well, you can make an argument within scripture. That's the minimal standard of generosity. That's not the end. That's training wheels. And I convictionally believe that I give first to my local church because I convictionally believe that it's through the local church that the gospel gets to the nations. It doesn't mean that God's not using other organizations to do that. And it doesn't mean that we should not be given to those other organizations. But what I convictionally believe and what I teach this church is that we first give to our local church because that is the primary means by which God gets the gospel to the nations. And I would encourage you to begin by giving 10%. Some of you are going 10%, no way. If I gave 10%, we would have to probably eat ramen noodles for the next year for our family. So, okay, we'll start somewhere. Start at a half percent and then grow. I've had people ask me before, hey, well, should I just get rid of all my debt and then start giving or should I start giving and then work on my debt? And my encouragement is this, is that you give first. Why? Because we believe that practices are formational and the practice of giving is forming you and shaping you and it's actually empowering you to, to be against the message that you're de dealing with on a consistent basis. But if you wait, would you have freedom to do that, right? You're in Christ. This isn't about earning brownie points. If you wait, you can. I'm just saying that, look, practices are formational. And I'm begging you, right? Begin the practice of giving if you're not doing that currently, because it will help you enjoy what you have. Will you believe this? Will you trust this? Will you listen? Or will you get up tomorrow morning and just approach your money like you always have? It's up to you. I think there's a better way. And what God wants you to do with it is always the better way. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to, to be still and quiet before the Lord. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup like this and said, this is the, the blood of the new covenant, which is being shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. So each time we gather together as a people of God and we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we are announcing the death of Christ until he returns. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, 
And this is how we do communion. We invite you to take communion with us. We have stations that are in the corners of this room and uh, encourage you to kind of just step up to the table as a group. And um, if you're one of those that's kind of a little more outgoing, invite people to do that for you because we still get a little weird about it. But encourage you, we want to take it as a family and then allow the individual to say blood of Christ shed for you, body of Christ broken for you. And then you can take the element back to your seat and take it in your timing. But if you're not a Christian, then our encouragement for you is not to take this meal, but that you would receive Jesus. To put your faith and trust in him. You know, you can come grab me at the end of the service or you can go to the blue start here sign. We would love to talk to you more about what that means. So church, whenever you're ready to take communion, you can stand up and go to one of these four stations. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.